from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, starting with verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which we, he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. The word of the Lord. From the letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, starting with verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, and in on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones of powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together, and he is, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The word of the Lord. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Do you fear God? Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to be with you all today on Christ the King Sunday. So today, uh, this day that we call Christ the King Sunday is the very end of the church year. So um, what does that mean? Well, um, the church year is different than our calendar year. 
So our calendar year, we still have a couple months, right? And then we'll end, we have New Year's Eve, and then New Year's Day, and it starts a new year. Well, the church calendar is organized very differently. So in the church calendar, it's the end today of ordinary time. In the, it's one of the seasons in the church calendar, which is also the end of the year. And next week is the beginning of Advent, which is the start of a whole new church year. So if somebody says Happy New Year to you next week, then that's kind of what they're referring to. Um, but the church calendar operates in seasons. And I think it's important how we mark time in our lives. How we mark time, how we mark seasons, I think matters. It forms us in specific ways. So next week, we begin this whole new church year as we step into the season of Advent. But today, at the end of the year, we remember that Jesus is King. The church has organized the calendar in such a way that the last week of the year, we go, Jesus is King. Remember that. And his kingship, his lordship, is different from anything else in our world. We begin the year next week in anticipation. What do we anticipate? We long for something. That anticipation is threefold. So first of all, we look back and we join with Israel in the Old Testament as she cries, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We place ourselves in that place, longing for God's coming into our world, longing for Christ's coming. It's the hope of the Jewish people. It's the hope for humanity. That is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, the anticipation or the hope of the world, the savior of the world. We also though, in addition to looking back and joining Israel and anticipating his first coming, we also anticipate God's work in our lives now. So this season of Advent is the sense of, God, what do you wanna do in my life this season? What, what, how are you going to shape me? How are you going to be present? How are you gonna shake me up and challenge me in this season? And finally, as we look back, as we anticipate now in our present situation, we look forward and we anticipate Christ's second coming. In fact, it might be a little confusing if you've never been in a church that's followed the lectionary calendar. During the season of Advent, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of text, not about baby Jesus, but it's a text about longing for his second coming when he comes and makes things right and restores. In fact, the first week of Advent, in all the years I've done liturgy and done the calendar, it, it kind of challenges people because the first week of Advent is a lot of judgment texts. <laughs> and so we go and we celebrate Advent, Christmas is coming, and then it's like, woe to you, Israel, for all that you've done wrong. <laughs> but Advent is this, something's not right, and so we long for something to come. This is a bit odd for us because in our American calendar, we usually celebrate an event before it happens. What do I mean by that? Well, we call the time that we're in now the Christmas season, don't we? And notice, I mean, I'm not gonna be a curmudgeon, but notice that gets earlier and earlier all the time, right? So whenever the Halloween decorations go away in a store, then all the Christmas decorations come up now. Like that's just, that's how that season works. Um, decorations are in the store well before the event itself, okay? Everything in our, and I think that's part of the reason why in stores this is the reality, is that we're shaped primarily by a consumeristic calendar. Like our Christmas season is built on the idea of buying everything to prepare for that event. That's how America works. I mean, I'm not, it's not a bash America Sunday, but that, that's just how our culture works, right? It's, it's consumeristic. It's, we tend to buy things and that is what the event is about. And I'm not sure, the reason why I don't put an indictment on all of us for this, I'm not sure it's possible to live in this culture and escape that completely. 
And I'm not sure there's anything wrong with celebrating that Christmas is coming. It's a beautiful thing. But I do think that as the church, we do live a different reality right beside that one that's significant. The Christian calendar works differently. The time before an event is about longing, anticipation, the absence of the reality now, which we hope for in the future. That's what that is about. Then once the event happens, we live into that event. We have space. In our culture, Christmas happens. And then like the day after Christmas, it's like, it's all over, put it all away, it's done. In the church calendar, it's different. Christmas happens and then the next 12 days are basking in Christmas. That's all they are. That's why the 12 days of Christmas, that song. Okay, anyway. So um, we live into it afterwards. So Advent is anticipating something. Christmas Day hits and it's celebrating Christmas. It's also similar in the church calendar this spring when we celebrate or we observe the season of Lent. Lent is preparation. It's anticipation. And then Easter happens and we celebrate Easter for 40 days in the church calendar. So next week, we begin Advent, and I want to give you a heads up that I will be out of town next week. I'll be in Tulsa with my family. Um, David Wally will be preaching next week and will lead us into the season of Advent. Um, But today, I think as we close the year, and then I'll be back in two weeks and continue in the Advent celebration with you. Today, I think it's fitting for us to be reminded of this kind of story that we're part of, this kingdom that we inhabit So Jeremiah 23, that first text that we read, it's right out the gate, it's boom, it's an indictment, it's a judgment and a warning to false shepherds, shepherds who have not done their job, is what it says. As we acknowledge the true kingship of God, what that also means is it involves recognizing how hollow, broken, and sinful other types of leadership are in our world. That we see lots of different types of leadership that are corrupt, that are broken, that are incomplete. God says through the prophets that these shepherds, these false leaders have destroyed and scattered the sheep of God's pasture. Now the image of the shepherd is significant in the Old Testament. It's all throughout the Old Testament. And it's kind of unique but uh, among Judaism, but it was, it's the image of one who guides and who cares for. Um, a shepherd doesn't seem like a strong dominant leader. So the Jewish picture of a leader as a shepherd was pretty unique. It was saying that leadership is more embodied in guiding, compassion. There's a slowness to the leadership of a shepherd. But the prophet says that the leaders of Israel, the shepherds of Israel have failed because they've driven the sheep away. So the sheep are scattered, they're far away because they failed at their leadership. They've not cared for them. So the quote is, I myself, speak God speaking, will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Notice that language of be fruitful and multiply. That is Genesis language. That's one of the things that human beings were called to do in the beginning of the world. It was God's original call for human beings to be fruitful and multiply. God says the shepherds have scattered the flock and they've not allowed them to be who God has called them to be in the first place. They have, they've been so corrupt, they've scattered, they've been dominating in such a way that the people can't be who God's created them to be. It's bad leadership. They're unable to live out God's dream for them and the false shepherds are actually keeping them from doing the work of stewardship of God's creation. 
Then he says, I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them. And they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall anything be missing. When I think about these false shepherds, I think about the Pharisees in the New Testament who were the leaders of God's people. And they had started creating purity tests and there were ethnic boundaries and there were gender boundaries on who got to be part close to the temple, who got to be part of God's forgiveness and God's healing and who was left out. This is bad shepherding. This is bad leadership to say, you are not included in God's forgiveness and God's healing and God's restoration. Only these who have it right are. So God says he will raise up a people, um, from up in his people, a righteous branch who will deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness. And as Christians, we look at this passage and we go, that's Jesus. That's, that's pointing and talking about Jesus who will come and execute true righteousness and justice. When I was coming up in ministry, just beginning in ordained ministry and youth ministry, there had emerged a, a genre of literature on leadership that started to become a trend. Um, and, and it's there now. I mean, there's a lot of books on leadership now. If you go to a bookstore, you'll find that. But it was really in its heyday, this idea of books on leadership in about the early 2000s to mid-2000s maybe. Um, there emerged leadership degrees at universities, which hadn't really existed before. You could get a degree in leadership that was kind of unheard of before that. New books on leadership. And especially among Christians, that really became a trend, right? That we really bought into this idea that there are principles on leadership that we need to study. Most pastors believed they were supposed to be reading these leadership books and it would help them achieve their goals, and most of these leadership books follow this kind of pattern. Um, they are principle or precept driven. So there's a few kind of basic principles that you're to follow with the goal of accomplishing a certain set of objectives. That's usually kind of the pattern of these. And I think a lot of that is necessary and important. So let me say that, okay? And I want to admit today, and it's not a secret to any of you all, that getting things done is, not, is definitely one of my weaknesses as a leader, okay? I'm not a get things done kind of leader, all right? And it certainly is a facet of good leadership, and I believe that. But I always felt stuck. I always felt weird about leadership kind of stuff, and I couldn't put my finger on why. I couldn't understand why. It just never sit right with me, somehow the way I was wired. I remember people asking all about that time churches were all about developing a mission statement. I have to have a clear mission statement and a purpose statement and a vision statement and all of those are different, I guess. And what's your target demographic that you're going after? There's all these kind of questions. And I was always left scratching my head. What's my mission? I wanna, I wanna pastor people. <laughs> that's kind of, that's it, right? Um, I wanna tell the story of Jesus. I wanna invite people to live with him. Target demographic, people, <laughs> right? But then I heard Eugene Peterson articulate it this way. And he was speaking of why so many pastors have either quit or stopped really being pastors and really become CEOs. And here's what he said. I wonder if at the root of the defection is a cultural assumption that all leaders are people who get things done and make things happen. 
That is certainly true of the primary leadership models that seep into our awareness from the culture. Politicians, businessmen, advertisers, publicists, celebrities, and athletes. But while being a pastor certainly has some of these components, the pervasive element in our 2,000-year pastoral tradition is not someone who get things done, but rather the person placed in the community to pay attention and call attention to what's going on right now between men and women, with one another, and with God. This kingdom of God that is primarily local, relentlessly personal, and prayerful without ceasing. And I remember reading that, and it <laughs> made all those weirdness about leadership feel way better. <laughs> and it was going, maybe, I'm, maybe we're called to something a bit different than all of these messages I've been taught. And I think this may have something to say not just for pastors, so hear me out, but for any Christian who holds influence or leads another person. Christian leadership is never trying to unlock something in someone in order to achieve an objective or an outcome. I think that depersonalizes people, becomes a way of getting something out of them rather than really helping nurture who they are. That kind of leadership, I think, can easily become coercive. Rather, it's about, God, what are you already doing in them? And in what ways can I nurture that and cultivate that in their life? What might that look like for those of you who are parents? The goal must never be to get our kids only to get our kids to grow up to behave in certain ways, to unlock a certain objective that we have. Just to get a degree and to make money, that's not our goal as parents, to get our kids to do those things. It's, it's wonderful to want those things for them, but that's not the goal. But to be a parent who recognizes God is already at work in your child, point that out and create an environment for listening to God. This is true at work too. Though you may never tell a person that you supervise that you're watching for God's work in their life, that may not be appropriate, <laughs> but you are able to see what's happening in them, point it out and steward it. The problem with false shepherds is that they lack care and they drive the sheep away. The leadership of Christ the King is the one who gathers, who nurtures, and who calls people to who they were created to be. Our Colossians text is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. And it's so beautiful and it's so rich, but there's also so much going on that it's hard to see it all the time and point it out. Paul encourages the church that is suffering and he challenges them to hold on to their inheritance. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. What is inheritance? Inheritance is not what we often think it is that you just go to heaven when you die. That's not the point of Paul's inheritance here, even though that's true. In the Old Testament, inheritance always meant land. It always meant promised land. So there's an inheritance, Paul says, that we have now. Because of Jesus, the great gulf of sin and death has been crossed. Paul says he has rescued us from the power of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved son in whom we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. God's new world has been inaugurated in Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. And then the passage goes on to give a description of exactly who Jesus is. 
He is the image of the invisible God, it says. If you remember the Genesis story, human beings were created in the image of God. But because of sin, we're broken images. The theologian Scott McKnight says it's like we're broken icons. We're created to reflect God, and we still do, but we're broken, right? We often fail to reflect that image. We go against God's intention. But God doesn't give up on us, and that's the beautiful story here. God sends his son who is the true image of the invisible God. The places where we are broken and no longer reflect that image, he does it perfectly. So we see this pattern here. In Jeremiah, the new shepherd is to restore the creational call to be fruitful and multiply. Here, we see that Jesus has done that. And he has restored the creational call to bear God's image. So all the things that human beings were called to be at creation— and have failed to be, have been restored in Jesus. He is who we've failed to be, and we now are invited to follow him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus embodies a new and true humanity. He leads us in what it means to be human. But image also had another meaning. So I talked about Genesis and that meaning. Image was significant because in the Roman Empire of the time that Paul was writing, there were images of Caesar everywhere. So Roman propaganda was rampant. So in your house, you probably had three or four little statues or pictures of Caesar himself. Um, If you went into the town square or the public baths or the marketplace, there were images of the empire everywhere. And they were always the most flattering images of the empire right? They were never showing Caesar on a bad day. It was always victorious and conquering, right? And it was all based on violence. It was based on domination and coercion. So it was Caesar with military strength and all of his weapons and all of his conquering, right? So there's all these images, this propaganda going on everywhere telling you, this is who's really Lord. Don't ever doubt it. This is who is really Lord, And these images communicated actually through this language that Caesar was the Lord and Savior of the world, that he is the Prince of Peace. That was the language that they gave for Caesar. So Paul is directly undercutting that. He is saying there is a new image. The empire described the Roman Empire as a body politic, with the emperor as the head of the body, And then the father of the household was under him, and then the wife and the children. But Paul says, no, 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 no. There's a new body, the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ, it is Jesus who is the head, not the emperor. Jesus is not an emperor who arrived on the scene by military strength and will be gone tomorrow when somebody stronger comes along. No, Jesus is the one in whom, Paul says, all things were created. He was before everything, and in him all things hold together. But here's the thing. The kingdom of Jesus is quite different from the kingdom of Caesar. They couldn't be more different. Caesar's kingdom was built on violence, domination, and coercion. Jesus' kingdom is built on self-sacrificial love. He is the firstborn from among the dead, Paul says, which means more is coming there will be a future resurrection. This is the one in whom God was pleased to have his fullness dwell, Jesus. He is the one who doesn't dominate, but the one who reconciles all things. 
This is what's so different. Like, I think it's easy sometimes for us to think. The, the Christianity is just another one of the stories that tries to explain the world. That there's a bunch of stories that try to explain the world, and Christianity is kind of one of those stories, but it's just, a lot of people would say, it's just as dominating and just as coercive as any of the other stories are. And there's been a lot of bad things done in the name of Christ. But at its heart, the Christian story is completely not about domination and coercion. It is about the God who gives himself up. Every other story in our world is about convincing or dominating or trying to prove. This story is about the one who says, I'm gonna lay my life down for you. And his authority comes from that. All right. I think we need to ask ourselves, what propaganda do we believe? <laughs> what is your propaganda of choice? You may not have an emperor who you worship as God. I don't think any of us do. I hope not. But I do want to suggest that there are still implicit, all-encompassing stories which try to shape everything that we do. I've mentioned before that I think materialism is one of these stories. I think we're defined by what we buy. We're defined by our progress on the American status meter. I think in the South especially, we have a unique um, take on this. Um, we have a dream of what perfect people look like and what we should be able to achieve to look perfect. Well-behaved kids who look perfect all the time, right? The perfect cute home that never gets messy and is always Instagram ready. That's the dream, right? Wearing the latest trends, but still making it look effortless, okay? having all the nicest stuff, have friends who we can hang out with on Friday nights and see all the best bands, taste all the best food, know all the best wines, while still having plenty of family time, killing it at work, become famous, and don't get in any credit card debt on the way. It's the dream. That just may be our equivalent of Caesar. <laughs> and here's another one. I think the extreme cultural polarization of our society is due to the fact that our political and cultural ideologies have become gods to us. Our side is always 100% right in all the culture wars. The other side is always 100% wrong. In fact, much of our political discourse is based only on how bad the other side is. Have you noticed that? Much of what we talk about in politics and culture now is just how bad the other guys are. And it's not just Democrat and Republican anymore. It's all the culture stuff. <laughs> it's, what do you think about Chick-fil-A, <laughs> right? Kanye West or Colin Kaepernick, right? We don't start with the gospel when we tackle issues of our day anymore. We see it all through the lens of our cultural team. Which team am I on? We can't empathize with the other anymore. We have no taste for nuance. I'm saying anymore, but I don't, <laughs> we've always struggled with this. We struggle with nuance and we're in service to the God of our cultural team. But here's the reality. None of our cultural ideologies has forgiven us. None of our cultural ideologies has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It may seem like they hold the world together, but they don't. 
That's the secret that we're here to say today. It's an open secret. <laughs> that, that none of them do that. There's a better way. I think today about, I mean, we say that and we're so used to a cultural Christianity. Think about Christians in China who are worshiping today and they're gathering and they're whispering, Jesus is Lord. This whole system that we're part of is not Lord. It doesn't have the final say, Jesus is Lord. There's a better king. When all of it proves hollow, God stays true. And we see this new kind of king illustrated in the gospel story. Jesus is on the cross and on the cross, Jesus forgives his oppressors. The Roman soldiers are calling him the king of the Jews. That's why I think this passage, it's so perfect for Christ the King Sunday. Because we want to read a passage, we go, Jesus is king, Christ is king of the world. We should have these triumphalistic kind of passages. No, we have Jesus on the cross. Because that's how his authority is shown. The soldiers are calling him king of the Jews. They're proclaiming something very similar to what we're proclaiming today. Jesus is Lord, but they're doing it in a mocking way. They say, if you're king of the Jews, save yourself. And there's an inscription above him as he's crucified that says, king of the Jews. Why? Why are they mocking him? Because Jesus doesn't appear very powerful. He doesn't look anything like a king in a worldly sense, does he? Jesus' authority is altogether different. His power is not in coercion and domination and oppression, but in forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing. That's the kingdom of God. And all that stuff doesn't look very powerful to the world. It doesn't, but it's what changes the world. The cross undermines all of our views of power this is what powerful power looks like in God. The way Christ the King conquers the world is by submitting to its violence on the cross. And Jesus does this by taking sin upon himself. If you notice in the life of Jesus, he spends his time with sinners. And that's even the case here. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's surrounded by sinners. So he's crucified. Even as he's crucified, he's crucified next to two criminals, these criminals were probably Jewish revolutionaries. And the word here for criminals is not the same word that Matthew and Mark use in this story. They use the word robbers, okay? So it's kind of a, a little bit lighter term. This one, Luke calls them criminals or evildoers. Jesus is close to evil in his death. You see, Jesus was crucified as a revolutionary, even though his revolution was altogether peaceful. The empire didn't know what to do with him. He was a threat, but not in a way anybody could figure out or understand. Most revolutionaries, when they died, they would use their last words as a curse on their torturers. So people would ask them, what are your final words? And it was, will you, you know, and kind of going off on their torturers and making a statement. This was seen as a sign of strength in death. Well, he died, but at least he died in a strong way. But Jesus doesn't respond with cursing. His last words are forgiveness. Father, forgive them. And this does something. Forgiveness is the way of God's new world. In John 20, after Jesus rises from the dead, he sends his disciples. But what does he send them to do? Well, the main thing he tells them to do is forgive people's sins. 
He sends his disciples, that's the whole point of this kingdom. Go forgive people. Go proclaim to people that their sins are forgiven. The world has changed. As Jeremiah would say, the sheep that are scattered are being gathered together. Empires are built on vengeance and selfishness. Christ's kingdom is built on forgiveness and self-giving love. The two thieves on the cross illustrate to us how the world responds to forgiveness and true love. One criminal joins the derision of the empire. So he says, aren't you the Messiah? It's the same words that are hurled at him by the centurions. If you were really valuable, you would achieve this thing. I think it's the same words that are often we hurl at ourselves. If you were really valuable, you would do it this way. You could achieve this thing. You would be liked by them if you were really valuable. You would buy this thing. (laughs) You would get back at them for the wrong they did to you. Those are the messages that we hear. These are the messages of the empire and those who have been caught up in the web of the empire telling us that the way of Jesus won't get us anywhere. How many times do we ask, God, if you're really there, why don't you look stronger? Why haven't you given me this thing yet? Why don't you just cooperate with my plan? I wasn't gonna share this today, but um, many of you know that Ashley and I got some uh, pretty disappointing news this week about our adoption. And uh, we had been chosen and told that we were chosen. And um, then the birth mom uh, made a different choice. And uh, we honor her right and ability to do that, but it was still very hard. And we've had so much of our journey of going, well, we had a plan. (laughs) And it looked like it was God's plan. And it was all figured out. And the the breadcrumbs looked like they were leading us this way. And we had this beautiful sign and this beautiful thing that happened only to go, gosh, I guess that wasn't the thing. I guess that wasn't what it was supposed to be. And... I think we all experience this at some point in our life where we go, um, God, if you just cooperate with my plan, everything's gonna be great. Be able to live for you, it's gonna be right. And yet life just doesn't work that way. It's messier, it's more difficult, and yet God is fully present with us in all of that, the disappointments and the joy. And perhaps sometimes our expectations are not his desires and his goal for us. My prayer through all of this journey, even though it's devastating, is to go, God, what is it that you wanna do in me through this? It may not be the outcome that I want, but you wanna shape me in some way to reflect your heart through all of this. The other criminal, though, recognizes that Jesus is king. Notice he doesn't say he knows much, He doesn't ask Jesus questions. He doesn't say, yeah, now, what's this whole thing about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Like, how's that work? Hey, can you tell me about this heaven that we're gonna go to? Hey, are the the gospels really reliable? Like, that's not really all the things that he has to figure out in this moment. No, he doesn't have his theology sorted out, but what he does is he recognizes that Jesus is good, he's undeserving of death, that he is a sinner, and he cries out that Jesus would remember him in his kingdom. So he affirms Jesus as king. Not everyone will respond to forgiveness, respond to the way of Jesus in our life. 
Many are still too caught up in the empires and the false stories. They're looking for a different kind of king. But there are those who you will encounter in your life who are ready to see the light of Christ shining in the lives of his followers. They're they're waiting, they're anticipating, they're longing. And Christ is ready to welcome them into his kingdom with open arms. So a few questions for us today as we close. First of all, what are the false stories of our world? Today, we've described them as false shepherds, as empires. What are the messages that we tend to believe that just aren't true? And what are the false things that we're chasing? Maybe that's materialism. Maybe it's political stuff. Maybe it's shameful narratives you've believed about yourself, that you've put some things about yourself on yourself that are not helpful and not valuable. You've gone, I'm not valuable because I haven't done this or this, or this person doesn't like me or whatever. That's a false message. Second, how is Jesus different? Is he different? Is he different than all of these other systems and all of these other stories? Is it just trading one oppressive story for the other? But we talked earlier about the fundamental difference between the story of Jesus and the stories of our world is that God's story has at its heart forgiveness and self-giving love. Watch how every other way of defining the world is about the grasp for power, tribal preference, or self-preservation. God's kingship is different. Okay, so the first one, what are the false stories of our world? Second of all, how is Jesus different? And then third, if we really buy into all of this, in what ways are we called to surrender today to his kingship? Who has he forgiven And therefore, who are we called to forgive and to love? I've said this before, and maybe it doesn't feel tangible, but I think it's important for us to reflect on. Like, we are forgiveness people. So what does it mean as we live in our work and our neighbors and our families to where everywhere we go, we embody God's forgiveness? That people know as they're close to us, man, I don't know what that person believes. I don't have it all figured out. I don't really know who they are. But I know that when I'm with them, I'm going to experience acceptance. (laughs) and I'm gonna experience embrace, and I'm gonna experience love. That's powerful. My prayer for us today is that in laying aside all of our allegiances, we might continue to grow in trust of the true king. May we recognize the false stories, listen for the better story, and live out the forgiveness and love of the kingdom of Christ our Lord. Amen.